0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's great to be outside, but the bottom line is this is still worship and a Bible study. So I hope you brought your Bibles, did you? Good. Good thinking. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the 25th chapter. Exodus chapter 25. We continue in Exodus, expound through the Bible. This is expound, exposed. We're exposed to the elements. And I think, you know, it's actually good that we're out here doing this. Because we're getting a little bit of the flavor of what it was like 3,500 years ago for the children of Israel to be outside in the Sinai, exposed to the elements for 40 years. Now, we're here for an evening. Imagine being in the Sinai. And let me just tell you, the weather there's um, a lot more like Phoenix. So you could be out in tents when it's like 115 degrees plus, and And um, that's where they lived. That's how they worshipped. And... Um, I tell you, as I was smelling and still smell some of the smoke wafting over here from the barbecue, I thought, this is what it was like. Because you have to imagine there was an altar of sacrifice where animals animals were killed and then placed and roasted on an altar. So to be around the tabernacle and later on the temple smelled an awful lot like Ian barbecuing those burgers. So we're getting a little bit of that flavor, that taste. The tabernacle is what we want to talk a little bit about tonight. That's what this chapter highlights. The tabernacle, where God met with mankind. It was called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. God was camping out with his people in the tabernacle. Now we get a a little pattern of that in chapters 25, 26, and 27 of the book of Exodus. That's what it's about. And here's the bottom line with the tabernacle. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his people. He said that I will meet with you there. It will be the place where I can meet, not that God lived in the tabernacle as much as God met with his people there in the tabernacle. It's the tent of meeting. Later on in Israel's history, there will be no tabernacle. They will build a permanent structure. It will be the temple. Then we get to the New Testament, and even though there is a temple, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. He spoke of his own body when he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days, and the Bible says in the Gospel of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. God in human flesh dwelling with his people. Now today, there is no temple. And where does God live today? In us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. So we go from tabernacle to temple to Christ walking, God in human flesh tabernacling among us to now the Holy Spirit living within us. Fast forward. To Ezekiel, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel chapters 40 through 46, and we have a millennial temple where God is dwelling in glory on planet earth over in Jerusalem. Then fast forward past the thousand years of Christ reigning on the earth, where we get a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And the Bible in Revelation 21 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And then in the next chapter it says, And then they shall see his face. So we want to look at this dwelling place, this tabernacle. It begins, the chapter opens with God Not only giving Moses instructions for the building of it, but tells the people of Israel to collect an offering for it. So in verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. So this is the first time in the Bible God takes an offering. And you'll notice that it's to be a very special kind of offering. It's for the tabernacle, and the attitude has to be right. They have to have a willing heart. God doesn't want anybody going, oh, I don't want to give to that thing. I'm, I'm not into building one of those things out here. God wants them to do it with a willing heart. Only those people who had a willing heart were told to give. And that's a New Testament principle. The Bible says we're to give as every person purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And by the way, the word cheerful means literally hilarious giver. That's not where you look at the check and go, I don't want to give to that tabernacle. That's where you give it. You go, ha, 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 woo. That's hilarious. God loves a cheerful giver. There's three ways that people can give. You know, some people are like a flint. You know, a flint, you have to hit it hard with a hammer, and the only thing you get is chips and sparks. Then there's people that are like a sponge. You know, the more you squeeze them, the more water you get out of them. But then there's the honeycomb. It just naturally pours out of its own... Substance this beautiful sweetness and that's the way God wanted his people to give So only those that have a willing heart Then in verse 3 and this is the offering which you will take from them gold silver and bronze Or as some translations say brass or copper You will get blue purple and scarlet thread Now that doesn't sound like much But back then, to get blue thread, well, you have to have a way to dye that thread. And the blue dye came from a special shellfish that was found in the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where they would extract the blue dye to put into the thread. To get purple thread, you would use the blue dye from the shellfish and add a certain chemical to get the purple. Then to get the red, you had to have a special kind of a worm that had A red dye inside of it, you would extract that from the worm and put that into the white thread to get red. Fine linen and goat hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood. Oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. There's 14 different kinds of materials that are listed, from precious metals like gold and silver to precious stones like onyx, to different colors of threads, 14 different kinds of materials. Now, we just read the description of those materials. Let me give you a familiar New Testament verse. Paul the Apostle speaks about building up the church, and he doesn't mean actually putting stones and glass on a building, but building up the body of Christ and using the gifts that all of us have and the talents that all of us have and having the right attitude with those gifts. And so listen to the picture that he paints. Some build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. There's different ways to build the body of Christ. Some give it their best. Some just don't. They just hang out. And so he uses the analogy of those precious stones of the tabernacle offering to speak about us seeing our gifts as precious as we contribute to the body of Christ. Now, everything they built, we'll see tonight, everything they built for this tabernacle was portable and for a good reason. They were on the move. They were going from Egypt to the promised land. God would go with them. But they had that special GPS system, you remember, that pillar of fire at night and that cloud that covered them and kept some of the heat away by day. And whenever that cloud moved, they moved. And when that cloud stopped, they stopped. So everything, they had to be able to take it down, pack it up, and get on the move. A few million people doing this in the wilderness. Now, we're going to read this one chapter, and that's all. We're going to take communion. But, but let's go on a tour of the tabernacle in our mind's eye. As you would approach this tabernacle structure, you, you would come up to a fence that's seven feet high and it had one gate There was only one entrance, one gate, one way in, and you had to have a sacrifice with you. You couldn't just go, I want to hang out with God. It's my turn to see him now. You had to bring a sacrifice. It had to be viewed by the priest and accepted. You would go to the door of the tabernacle. He would take the animal, inspect it. He would bring it inside the tent enclosure. He would kill it on one of the benches that was by the altar, and then he would sacrifice it after having washed it upon the altar of sacrifice. So you would approach the tabernacle, and you'd see this seven-foot fence with a door. Once you got into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the courtyard itself was 150 feet deep or long by 75 feet wide. And it was just white cloth that formed this perimeter fence. There was that big altar, bronze, brass altar of sacrifice that was toward the east side. And then closer still toward the holy place was a basin or a laver for washing. Then what featured the most in this tabernacle was a tent that was in the middle of the courtyard, more toward the west side. Now, this tent was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide, and it was divided into two rooms. You couldn't see from the outside what was inside, and you couldn't go inside unless you were a priest. If you were a priest and you could go into that tent that was 45 feet by 15 feet, you would see that that big tent was divided actually into two rooms. The first room was 30 feet deep. The second room was 15 feet so it was a cube inside that first room that was called the holy place and in the holy place were articles of furniture and we have replicas to scale by the way of those things that were in the tabernacle for instance um, as you would walk in and you would look toward the right or toward the north you would see this table of showbread and it'll be here afterwards for those who can't see it because of the speaker's So here's the table of showbread. I'll explain what that is. The text will. In front of a veil that separated those two rooms was this, an altar of incense. And we actually had incense that was lit a while ago. And it was all the hippies were really getting excited about that. And then um, uh, on the other side of the holy place was a much larger one of these called the menorah or the lampstand. So the tabernacle had one door, one source of light, a table with bread on it. And just keep those in mind because we'll tie it all together toward the end. And then there was a veil that separated those two rooms, the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there was only one article of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And again, this is to scale, at least the boxes. The angels were just guessing on. That's the most important piece of furniture In the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Because God was said in the Old Testament to dwell between those cherubim. There he would meet with his people. And I'll explain as we go. Now inside this box, inside the Ark of the Covenant, and I know Indiana Jones wanted to find out what was in it. What was in it was a copy of the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets of the law that were given. The testimony was placed inside that. Later on in their history, something else was placed inside of it. Not here, but later on. They're going to put a little jar, a little clay jar with manna, that bread that fell from heaven, that, that daily sustenance by which they ate and God gave them nourishment for 40 years. They'll put a jar of that to remember how God took care of them. Then they'll also put within the Ark of the Covenant the rod of Aaron that budded forth and flowered. And they'll put the, the, the rod of Aaron inside the Ark to remind them of authority in the house of Aaron. Verse 10 tells us about the Ark of the Covenant. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, A cubit and a half its height. So 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. That's the Ark of the Covenant. It was made out of acacia wood. This is just plywood. Acacia wood is the wood that was found in the Sinai Desert. It still is. It's plentiful in that area. It's those desert scrub brushes that grow into some pretty massive trees. The wood of the trunk is so strong, it's denser, it's harder than oak. So it is simple wood, but it's rough, it's tough, it'll last, it will endure. Very simple, humble wood, but something that was hard and would endure. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. We've tried You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings shall be on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you'll see, if you can't now, you'll see how this is exactly made like that, where there's rings, and these really are just broom handles, but you get the idea that you could transport it. You could have four priests to carry this ark, and that's how it would be transported. You place it on the shoulders. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. That's the Ten Commandments written in stone. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width. So 45 inches by 27 inches. And you shall make two cherubim or angels of gold, of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So these are depictions of what, our artist, Jay McLaughlin, years ago, made as the cherubim, these angelic beings, probably because in heaven, surrounding God's throne are heavenly creatures that give him worship. They're cherubim. Um, Isaiah sees seraphim another classification of angelic beings so these angels were hovering over the mercy seat This is the place where God said he would dwell. This is the place where sin would be atoned This is the place where God would meet with his people So they were looking down upon this lid and that lid was solid gold the uh, ark of the covenant That mercy seat was solid gold. So it was the most valuable part And you shall make two cherubim, I read that, verse 19, make one cherub at one end, one at the other end, you shall make cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat, so all solid gold, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. So what does that mean? It means that these creatures, these cherubim, these that represent the presence of God, were looking down upon a box, a lid, and in that box was the law that the people of Israel failed to keep, right? That was God's standard that they swore they would keep, but they failed to keep it. Now, do you remember in our study in the book of Exodus twice God's people said to Moses, all that the Lord will tell you, we will do. That was their promise. As soon as Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, we'll get to it in chapter 32, with the law of God in his hands, what does he find the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Yeah, these are the guys that said, everything that God says, we'll do it. They couldn't even wait for Moses to get down with the law they said they would keep and they're already into idolatry worshiping a golden calf. Well, Moses had a temper and he took the stone tablets, the commandments of God that God, the Bible says, had written in his own finger. Not that Moses wrote or transcribed. God wrote on the stone and he was so mad that he broke those tablets, at the foot of the mountain and got down on these guys, climbed all over their case, took the golden calf, ground it up into powder, put it in water, and made the children of Israel drink it. So he was torqued. So, because the first copy of the commandments had been destroyed, God calls him back up to the mountain, gives it to him a second time, this time Moses with his own labor, with his own chisel, with his own hand, writes those ten words, the Decalogue, and that's the copy that will be placed inside the ark. So the law, the angels were looking down at a box that contained the law that was a testimony against them. They didn't keep the law, and the angels are looking down. It was a reminder of the standard they failed to keep. When I read this, I thought of my upbringing. I had a, a temper as a young boy, and when I was a teenager, I got really angry at my brother and angry at my mom and angry at my dad, and I went into the hallway of my room and I karate chopped the door of my bedroom with my foot. I thought I was you know really cool, kung-fu. I kung fued the door, and I put a huge hole into the bedroom door that my parents never repaired. For years, I would come home and visit from college, and that door was there with a the hole in it. I said, you got to do something with that door. They said, we didn't put a hole in it. So they just covered it with a little white piece of cardboard. Every time I went home and turned left, in my and I looked down the hallway, it was a reminder of my anger. The law inside the box was a reminder of their failure. But the priest would go inside the room, the Holy of Holies, once a year, and he would take blood, and he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat. So now the angels are looking down at the blood that would cover their failure to keep God's law. That's what they would see, and that's why it was called the mercy seat. God will act for his people not based upon what they have done, but in spite of what they have done, God will show them mercy and not give them what they deserve. That's where God will meet with them. God is merciful. I want to meet with you. I know you can't keep my standard. I know you failed. And my blood will cover your failure. So that's what heaven would look down and see, the blood that covered their failure. Aren't you glad that God looks at you through the blood of His Son. And not at you through the lens of your own failure, but through the lens of the blood of His Son. Because we begin our day with high hopes. Lord, I'm going to serve you today. I really want to draw close to you today. I want to walk with you and continue to walk with you. But by about 12 noon, things can happen. And by the end of the day, we go oh, Try it all over again tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I'll get better luck. Like one person who said, Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy. I haven't been grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm thankful for that. But in a few moments, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. We can relate to that. And so I'm so glad for the mercy seat. Now fast forward a little bit into Israel's history. When the children of Israel will cross over the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3, what's the first thing that will go across the Jordan? The ark. Four priests will bear the ark of the covenant and they will take 3,000 feet of space And go 3,000 feet ahead of any of the crowds that will cross the Jordan. They would go up to the water first and put their feet in the water. And then the water opened up. So it was that symbol that led them that went first into the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant. Fast forward a few more years. Israel has settled in the land. But a group of people called the Philistines. Do you know who the Philistines are? Don't say my uncle's a Philistine or my son's a Philistine. The Philistines were a group of people, ancient peoples, who warred against Israel. And so they were fighting the Israelites in 1 Samuel. And what happened is the people of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant at this time was up in Shiloh in the central part of Israel, they went to Shiloh, got the Ark of the Covenant and said, we've got to bring the Ark into the camp. If the Ark is in the camp, we'll win the battle against the Philistines. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp of Israel, the Israelites shouted, the Bible says, so loud that the earth shook. And the Philistines said, what is that noise? And somebody else, another Philistine said, God has come into the camp of the Israelites and we're in trouble. But because the children of Israel were using the ark sort of as a magic charm, as an amulet, God did not give them the victory. The Philistines won that day and they captured the ark of the covenant. And now it's in Philistine territory. Now, do you remember... The priest named Eli, have you heard that name? Eli the priest in the book of 1 Samuel. Eli was 98 years old when the ark was captured by the Philistines. They come back up to Shiloh and they say, Eli, there's been a horrible battle that has taken place and we want you to know that your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. They died in the battle and and the ark of God has been captured. The Bible says that when he heard that his two sons had died, he was shaken, but not as shaken as when he heard that they captured the ark. It says when he heard that they captured the ark of God, he fell backwards. He was 98 years old and he had gained a lot of weight and he fell off of where he was seated and he broke his neck and he died. His daughter-in-law was pregnant at the exact same day. When she heard that her husband had died and that her father-in-law had died, she gave birth prematurely to a child and called the child by the name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, saying the glory of Israel has departed because they have captured the Ark of the Covenant. So now the Ark is in Philistine territory. It's not in the tabernacle the Philistines have it and they place it in the temple of their god the fish god Dagon D A G O N Dagon they place it in the temple the next morning when they go in the temple they find that their stone idol Dagon is on its face as if worshiping the ark so they said well we don't know what happened last night maybe an earthquake but let's let's pick our god back up and give it some help and put it where it belongs they did, and the next day they came into the same temple of Dagon, and this time they, it had fallen over again. The head was broken off, and the hands were broken off. It was irreparable, and they said, get rid of that box. Get rid of the ark. It's nothing but trouble. So they sent it back to the children of Israel, and for 20 years it stayed in the house of a guy named Abinadab in a town called Kiryat Jerim until David would bring it back. ...into Jerusalem some years later. So that's sort of a synopsis of the ark. In verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark... ...and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you... ...and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat... ...from between the two cherubim... ...which are on the top of the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now, I need your attention for just a moment because I want to tie two ends together. The mercy seat. That's this lid right here that I'm lifting up. And if this was the real Ark of the Covenant, I'd probably be dead now doing this. So this was the mercy seat. And um, the mercy seat, if we were reading a Greek Bible... And we were reading the Old Testament in the Greek Bible called the Septuagint version. Some of you have heard of that. When we get to the word mercy seat, the Greek word used would be hilasterion. Helasterion is the Greek word for mercy seat. That's what we would read. And God said, put on the ark the helasterion, the mercy seat. When we get to the New Testament... The New Testament was written in Greek. There's a word we find four times in the New Testament. The word is propitiation. Show of hands, how many of you have ever read the word propitiation? That means you're reading your Bible. It says in 1 John, Jesus Christ is our propitiation, or the atoning sacrifice, some translations say, for our sin. The Greek word is the word hilasterion, John and the author of Hebrews as well as Paul and Romans specifically use the word Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. And here's the message. The only place that God will meet with mankind is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to have fellowship with God, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. He's the mercy seat. He's the place he will commune with mankind. Because Jesus shed his blood for our sins. If you've never read the book, Pilgrim's Progress, please buy the book. My son and I made it a habit when he was younger of reading it. Like every couple of years, we read it together. We love the book. Pilgrim's Progress. And my favorite scene is when the star of the book named Christian, who has this tremendous burden on his back, this backpack that he can't take off. It's the burden of his sin. He finally comes to the hill of Calvary and John Bunyan, the author of the book said, And I saw in my dream as Christian walked up to the cross that the burden that was on his back loosed from his shoulders fell off his back and began to tumble and continued till it came to the opening of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. It was a picture of coming to grace, coming to faith in Christ, Jesus, our mercy seat, and the burden of sin being released at the cross and the open tomb, and it's forever gone. God met with him and changed his life. Verse 23, and we'll finish the chapter up. There's not much left. This is now the table of showbread. So we now shift our focus from this piece of furniture to this piece of furniture. And we even have... Token tortillas or showbread, actually pita bread on the top of there, that's sort of realistic, the table of showbread. This is one of the articles in the holy place. So if you were a priest and you walked into the holy place, on the right-hand side you would see this table. You shall make also a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, a cubit and a half its height. So it would be 36 inches long, as it is here, 18 inches wide, and 22 inches high. And that's made to scale. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are its four legs." The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. The children of Israel were to be represented before God three different ways. Number one, on the high priest's shoulders were two stones that were inserted in the cloth ephod. The two stones on one side, six names or six tribes of the children of Israel were inscribed, and on the other, six other names were inscribed. So he would be bearing on his shoulders the names of the children of Israel. He'd represent them before God. Then over his ephod was a breastplate of gold that had 12 stones. And each of the stones represented one of the tribes of Israel. That's the second way they were represented. And the third way was daily in the holy place 12 loaves of bread on this table one for each of the tribes of Israel to represent that God would sustain them and give them the bread that they would need to survive the wilderness journey. And that represented them. It's called the bread of presence. The children of Israel represented in the presence of God. Every Sabbath day, the bread was changed out. Every day, oil, sorry we have candles in this menorah, but oil would be added to keep the candlestick burning. Once a week, the bread would be changed. The bread that was left there would be taken and eaten by the priests and the families, and then new bread would be put in its place. Now, the table of showbread, like the mercy seat, is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's made out of acacia wood covered with gold. Acacia wood is simple. It's common. It's humble. Jesus Christ was a human being, a man, but also he was God, overlaid with gold. God in human flesh. It's a beautiful picture of Christ mingling the two elements together, the gold and the wood. And then the bread, which was the sustenance of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Also, According to Leviticus chapter 24, the grain for the bread, you would harvest the grain so it would be dead, it would be ground up in a millstone, and then it would be baked. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was speaking about his resurrection. Jesus was ground, you might say in the grinding stone of the Garden of Gethsemane where he agreed before the Father to take upon him the sin of the world. And then Jesus rose from the dead in glory, giving us new life and feeding anyone who would come to him. Now, the table of showbread, in 70 AD, you know what happened in 70 AD? That's when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. A general by the name of Titus, who was the son of the emperor Vespasian, conquered the city of Jerusalem. When they came into the temple and took the articles, it doesn't say they found the ark, but it does say they found the table of showbread, and they brought it out to the people, and they brought it into the city of Rome, and it caused such excitement, Flavius Josephus said. It was almost like a riot. People were so excited that they conquered the gods of Israel. That's what they said. And the proof was that they got the table of showbread. If you're ever in Rome and you get to the Colosseum, you'll see two arches. And one of them is the arch of Titus, the general who conquered Jerusalem. And in the inside of the arch, you see a motif. It is still present today. It shows Titus taking Jewish slaves after destroying the temple in 70 A.D., and one of the things they're parading is the table of showbread. It's still in stone to this day. And Josephus said that it was placed into that arch. Verse 31 is the golden lampstand, this menorah I have a copy of here to my right. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. In the tabernacle, only one source of light. And guess what the Jewish rabbis called the tabernacle and later on referred to the temple as because of the menorah. They called the temple the light of the world. The temple, they said, is the light of the world. Six branches shall come out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and flower. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on the other side of the branch with an ornamental knob and flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. So one solid piece of gold, a central shaft with three branches on either side. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs, their branches shall be of one piece, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. If you ever make it to Israel on a trip, I encourage you to visit what is called the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. The Temple Institute has done the best job of finding all of the historical documents relating to the temple and its articles of worship. And so they have collected 400 pages, 400 pages that are written from history just about the making of the lampstand. And they have researched it and have duplicated it out of gold to scale. It is huge and it is kept under surveillance and under glass, but it's outside. You can see it. You can walk by it, walk up to it. It's in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Temple Institute is a group of people that are committed to the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. They want to do it as soon as they're allowed to do it. And they're making the vestments for the priests. They're making the articles. They've got the table of showbread, the altar of incense. They've got the... the uh, I know they have the menorah. They haven't said anything about the ark yet. But they've made these to the scale of what was in the temple, and they're ready to unveil them. You shall make, verse 37 seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all of its utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So, God gives to Moses a blueprint for a temporary movable cloth tent structure with these articles in it. And God says, there I will meet with you, especially at this mercy seat. Now, what makes the tabernacle interesting? And I got to say, it is interesting and it should interest you. Here's why. The, the, The tabernacle and all of its furnishings are given more biblical real estate than any other single topic in the Bible. Fifty chapters in the Bible are devoted to the tabernacle. Two chapters in the Bible are devoted to the creation of the universe. Now, why is that? Well, I don't know exactly, but here's one possibility. According to the book of Hebrews, what the children of Israel had in the tabernacle was in a small, primitive, humble scale what heaven was like. Listen to the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 8. The priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned while he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Perhaps it was given so much detail because that is what it's going to be like to experience heaven. So it's interesting when we find John raptured up into heaven in Revelation chapter 5, the scenery bears some resemblance to the articles that are in that courtyard and toward that tent dwelling, the Holy of Holies and the holy place itself. There was even a, a laver for washing that they had, like they had that basin for washing in the tabernacle. John sees a sea, but it's clear as crystal glass. It's hardened now because, well, you don't need to wash anymore. The cleansing has been taken care of past tense by Jesus. But the, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that it's a pattern of things going on in heaven. So we close with this. Consider this. One door into the tabernacle. Not two, not ten, one door, one way of entrance. And you could only approach God through that one door with a sacrifice. Blood had to be shed, and there was only one way to approach God. Even as today, there's only one way a person can approach God, and that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, if you wanted to move toward the tabernacle... You'd go to the east side. That's where the door was. If if this were the tabernacle, I would say that would be the door to the tabernacle as I'm looking toward the mountain to be on the east side. Camped on the east side around the tabernacle was the tribe of Judah. So you would have to go through the tribe of Judah to even approach the tabernacle. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Exactly. When you were looking at the tabernacle from the outside, it looked pretty ugly. You had cloth, you had goat's hair, you had badger skins, you had ram skins. Nothing really, wow, nothing really spectacular. But from the inside of the tabernacle, pure white linen, exquisite embroidery and gold. It was beautiful on the inside, plain and ugly on the outside. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, concerning Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53, he has no form or comeliness. There is no beauty that we should desire him. To look at Jesus Christ from the outside, I don't think he was striking or handsome or people said, look at that guy, see the halo around him. Nothing impressive, nothing attractive. But on the inside. That was the gold. That was the glory, the compassion, the love, and he was deity. He was God walking in a human body. Inside, there was one source of light, the menorah. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Inside, there was bread that symbolized the sustenance of God's people. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Inside, there was this altar of incense. Incense represented the prayers of the saints going up to God. That's the present ministry of Jesus Christ today. The Bible says he's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Now, one thing we didn't cover yet, and that is between the holy place where these articles were, and this lampstand was, between that room and the room that housed this, the Ark of the Covenant, was a curtain, a veil. Even the priest couldn't go into that veil. The priest couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He had a robe. Sewn on the bottom of the robe were pomegranates. In between the pomegranates hung little golden bells. You could hear them tinkling as the high priest would walk in. And as he would walk in, Tradition tells us that the other guys would be listening on the outside. As long as those bells were moving, everything was good. If the bells stopped moving, not good. Something happened. He keeled over. He died. His heart must not have been right before God or he didn't follow all the ritual washings. And so there was a rope tied to his ankle. When those bells stopped, if they ever did, they would pull him out. Better get a new high priest. He's gone. The veil separated everyone from God. And the only representation was one day a year by the high priest, very trepidously. He had blood in his hands and he would sprinkle the mercy seat. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. God was saying, All of you who have been shut out can now come in. There is intimacy. There is access. We can meet together over the mercy seat, the Helasterion of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this that we've talked about, Christ in the tabernacle, shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said to the leaders of Israel, how come you don't believe in me? For Moses wrote about me. Really? When and where did Moses write about Jesus? Well, Moses said, another prophet is coming like me, him you should receive. But also, the way the tabernacle was described and the way Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, etc., etc., I'm the door, should have given it away. He is the fulfillment. Today, we don't have a tabernacle. But today we do have a mercy seat and it's not found in an institution. It's not found in Jerusalem. It's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that lives in your heart. I hope he lives in your heart. If you know Jesus, the Bible says you have a great high priest. When I was a boy, I said, mom, I really blew it this week. I need to go see the priest. She knew what I meant. I had to go to confession. I got to see the priest. The Bible says we have a great high priest who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. You can come directly to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the tabernacle shows us the difference graphically between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here's the deal. We're going to pass out the elements of the bread and the juice, the wine, the fruit of the vine. We're going to pass these elements out. We're going to take communion. As we take the bread and as we drink the cup, we're reminded that all of these sacrifices, especially the Passover sacrifice, was fulfilled in Jesus when on Passover night he took these elements and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you drink this is the blood of the covenant my blood that was shed for you and so we don't have to stand at the outside and bring our little animal and hope it's perfect that the priest will accept it and shed that animal's blood for us we don't have to send in a high priest and hope that the bells are still heard when he goes in we can come the bible says boldly into the throne of God and receive grace to help in time of need. Boldly. Even the high priest couldn't come boldly. You can. I can. We can. We should. Have you failed, God? Have you lived some way that isn't perfect? Well, join the group. Welcome to the crowd. You're in the right place. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the mercy seat. Jesus Christ, the one who dispenses mercy. It could be also that some here tonight don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. I encourage you in the next few moments, yeah, it can happen right now, that you invite Jesus in. As I pray, the worship band is going to come. We're going to pass out these elements. It'll just take a few moments. Let's just take a quiet moment and evaluate our own hearts as they come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have the time as these elements are being passed out to think about who we are in relationship to who you are. The law that was in this box 3,500 years ago was the law of testimony. It testified that God's standard had not been kept and blood was required to be shed to cover the broken law, to cover the failure. It became a place of mercy. And there in mercy, you would meet with your people. You would forgive their sins. Lord, you said in your word in the New Testament, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we examine, as we confess our sins to you, Lord, heal us, forgive us, establish us and help us to walk in obedience to you. For anyone who's here tonight, Lord, who doesn't know you personally, who hasn't made that commitment to Christ and received the covenant Lamb of God into their lives, I pray that right here, right now, some would. If you're seated with us tonight and you've never really given Jesus a chance, you've never invited him in as your Savior, as your Master, then I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Right where you're seated, you could say these words and mean them from your heart. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus paid for my sins on a cross, that he shed his blood for me. I believe that he died, that he rose again from the dead. I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I turn to you as my Savior. I want to follow you as my Master. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me your help to do that.